Welcome to Series 5 of Industry Minds. My name's Owen Woodgate from Tax for Actors. We are over the moon to be sponsoring this series. It really is one of the best yet. So without further ado, enjoy the show. And welcome to Industry Minds, the podcast which discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Kathy Reed, and I'm Scarlett Maltman. And today we are joined by producer and casting director Danielle Torrento. Hello. Hello. How are we all? Good. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know what week of lockdown it is right now, but it's an absolute pleasure to see you. Thank you very much. Yes, I think it's week eight thousand nine hundred sixty-four, or week three. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what day it is. I, I keep losing losing count. Not a clue. It's all they're all merging into one. I think I think I realised it was the weekend a few days ago, and I was like, oh. And then someone else spoke to me about a bank holiday last week, and I was like, every day is a bank holiday. <laughs> literally, literally. But at least we've had some sunny weather. That's been a huge blessing. Not so sunny yesterday. But I've got a little tomato plant um, that a little kid gave me when I was out on my dog walk. So with the rain, it's managed to grow a little bit. It's just that my wind is still there. So that's a little positive. That's cute. <laughs> um, so we always start with a word association game, Danielle. Are you ready? What? All right. Go on. <laughs> so the first one, Netflix. Don't have it. No idea. Additions. Glorious. London. City. Meetings. Don't remember them. Rest. Delightful. Sunshine. Lifeblood. Emails. Can't live without them. Halloween. Why? (laughs) Pizza. Delicious. Kindness. Essential. Amazing. You smashed that. I can't believe you don't have Netflix, though. If I had Netflix, I would never sleep. I have quite an addictive personality, and I binge on anything that I love. So if I had, and so so I, this is, I mean, it's it's been interesting. I know lockdown has been a different thing, but if I had Netflix in real, in you know, previous life, I would never sleep because I've I've got into this terrible habit. Of, and it started when I was in China with a, a show last year of taking the laptop to bed with you and just, oh, I'll just watch one episode. Well, you don't, do you? I mean, that's physically impossible. No, it's, it's yeah. almost illegal. Um, so you end up, and, and I would just never, so, so no, I, I do not allow myself Netflix because I would never sleep. That is fair. And I'm completely guilty of being one of those people that does watch a whole series in an evening and does not sleep. <laughs> I wish I had that self-restraint. I do not have it. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, Danielle, we always start at the very beginning. What sparked your interest in the arts? Where where did it all start for you? Um, well, I was when I was four. Um, I gave possibly. I mean, this is just my opinion, but I would imagine if more people had seen it, they would agree. The best Mary there has ever been in nativity in the history of all nativities. Possibly even better than the original Mary herself. I don't know. I was there. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I, I mean, I, it's funny, isn't it? I don't know. Childhood memories are a funny thing because you wonder how much you remember or how much you remember because it's what you've been told or you've seen in a photograph. But I think I genuinely can remember that feeling of being on stage. And I suppose at that age, it was more about being applauded. I mean, to say it changed my life at the age of four seems ridiculous, but it, I just suddenly I found my place in the world. That's where I wanted to be. And from, from that moment onwards, right up until all through secondary school and then drama school and nearly 10 years of my career I was an actor because it was all I ever wanted to be and all I knew and all I cared about and then of course well I'm sure we'll get on to what happened next but what happened next was I decided that was a stupid job for a grown-up and moved into producing and that, and that this is now where I really feel that this is my the second half of my life is absolutely the right place to be but yeah so my, my love of theatre came from school and having the most incredible teacher who just nurtured I mean I went to a very school small primary school there was you know 12 of us in each year she just just nurtured everything we wanted to do and I was incredibly lucky for that and so she sort of saw something in me and pushed me even at that young age and you know we we lived up in um up just outside Manchester when I was growing up and but we used to regularly every year come down to London for drama school competitions and and remarkable remarkable 
so yeah that's where it started that's amazing I really want to see the footage of you as Mary <laughs> darling unfortunately I'm old enough that nobody recorded their kids doing that sort of thing anymore because they didn't see it. so uh, there, I'm, uh, there is no footage which is why I'm allowed to say it was the best there ever was <laughs> someone might prove me wrong I bet you're absolutely fantastic. Um, So chat to us about that turning point then, as you mentioned there from, you know, you said you were an actor and going into producing. Well, so I became an actor because I love the theatre and it's that the liveness of it that that always attracted me. Um, And I trained at Guildhall School of Music and Drama and had the best three years of, I I mean, I just loved every minute of it. And sometimes think, would I love to go back and do it all again with the knowledge that I have now? And some, sometimes the answer is that yes. Other times that's the most horrendous thought in the world. But I loved it. And, and I got an agent straight out after my first show in, in, in the third year and went and was very lucky that I worked a lot. But I worked a lot in telly and film, which was lovely for the bank balance, but did nothing to feed my soul. And don't get me wrong, I loved every job that I did for the job that it was. But I missed the theatre. And it is, you know, it's one of, it's those, it's, it's true, isn't it? That when you get put in a box early on in your career, it's very hard to get out of it. I mean, we hear this often, don't we, with musical theatre actors, you say, but I want to do telly. And they're like, and how do I break out of that? You know, when all my credits are West End musicals, how do I prove that I can, you know, it's tricky. It is tricky. Anyway, so I was doing, and I did a lot of 1990s sitcoms, um, which were interesting, generic. Sort of, I used to joke that they were sort of same script, different denim jackets, because they were all sort of the same formula. I don't, please don't get me wrong. I, I'm so grateful that I did it and I loved every minute of the actual job. But the progress of my career just seemed a bit not, not, going, not moving in the way that I wanted it to. Anyway, so I was doing a job, the, the last job that I ended up doing, which was a, a series for Sky, which was sort of brilliant and awful at the same time. It was, it was a soap but a 32-episode series soap rather than an ongoing one. Um, and I just remember thinking, I think, and I was just about to turn 30, and I remember thinking to myself, <clears throat> can I imagine having this conversation with myself when I'm about to turn 40? Like, what's the next 10 years going to look like? And I just thought, I don't, think I, I don't think I want this. And I wanted to get back to the theatre, and I didn't know how. And I think a lot of people don't know what a producer is. And certainly I didn't about know what a theatre producer is because I'd, I'd hardly worked in the theatre. So, but that, but that was the turning point. That, that was the point that made me think, I, 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 I think I need something new. And, and after that series, I stopped. I turned down offers. I, I just made the decision to stop. How, how did that feel to, to take that kind of really, really strong stance in your career? Because I know a lot of people who are maybe like, oh, I really fancy doing something like this or I'm not feeling great about great about this anymore but I don't have like the courage to stop how did you how did you find that and how did it feel I think I was incredibly blasé in my youth I think I was I was incredibly privileged privileged in terms of being brought I mean we weren't we weren't we weren't rich in the slightest we were you know not not poverty but not far above not far above it but I was incredibly privileged that I was just I was allowed to be my own person from a from right from the beginning of thought I was, you know, and I was probably quite, what's the word I'm looking for? I was <laughs> arrogant-ish, but certainly just so confident in my own ability and the fact that I would succeed in things. Um, and I was obviously very lucky that, that I'd managed to get, get all the way to just turning 30 without really having any major knockbacks. Even the knockbacks that I did, and I'm talking about career here. But even the knockbacks I had in my career were ones that, well, the next one door closes and another one opens. Um, so I think I was incredibly lucky. So in answer to your question, of course, it was a massive decision. I didn't see it as that at the time. I saw it as, right, what's next? Um, and again, I was quite lucky that within quite a short space of time, the next door was open. So it wasn't so much of a concern. But I, I, don't, I don't know, looking back on it, it seems like the most terrifying thing in the world to just stop the thing that I'd wanted to do since I was four and without knowing what the next thing was or set up or anything at the time it just didn't seem like a big choice God, that's, that sounds strange saying that out loud no it's it's, oh. it's it's great it's really interesting just just hearing about how you how you switched yeah yeah it's fantastic it's so brave as well so and uh, um, what you said there that 
and you're not sure a lot of people know what a producer is. Could you just tell us in your own words what a producer is? Because me and Kathy completely agree. And we had a whole creative series last last series um, because we wanted to shed a light on, you know, what what people actually do, what producers do, what casting directors do. Um, So could you just chat to us about, about what you do? Absolutely. So there's lots of, di- I mean, look, there are, there have become lots of different titles for what producers do and there are different, different sort of variations of producers um, now. And obviously it depends where you're working. So for instance, Sonia Friedman does a diff- very different job than somebody who's just starting out and doing their first show at the union as a producer. So whilst, whilst the overall concept of what they're doing is the same, we are still, you know, making theatre. Um, there's very, there's, there's enormous differences between where you are in the industry, your place in the industry, how many people you have working for you in your company, all those sorts of things. But the bottom line is a producer, if you think of a pyramid, the producer lives at, is the top block and puts all the other blocks in place. So, so, every, every, so underneath the producer, there'll be the director and the, create, and the choreographer and, and then you filter... D- not down as in, it doesn't mean to say that it's less important, but, you know, just in terms of a structure. Um, the producer makes, makes the overall major decisions. So the producer will decide on the title of the show and go for the right and, and apply for the rights and get them. The, th- the producer will secure the theatre that it's going to be in. The producer will put the creative team together with the help of the creative. So, again, if you're looking at the pyramid structure, the, the first thing will be probably to get a director. And of course, the director will then have input into who the choreographer should be and who the musical director should be and and, accept, and the design. And then the designer, once they're on board, they will have input into who the design assistants are and who. So it, it all filters itself down. And it's, it, it should be, I think, the way it works the best is if everyone is collaborating and everyone is on the same page. Um, but I suppose that in, in its most basic terms, the producer is the boss. They, we always say, don't we, if things go well, it's the director's credit and if things go badly it's the producer's fault <laughs> it's, the, it's the one there that um yeah I think I think producers are they're the, they're the ones who have to have the big decisions to make um a good producer will then allow her team or their team to do to make their own decisions um nobody wants to be micromanaged and if I've done my job right I don't need to sit in every rehearsal and watch what the director's doing because I trust that the director's going to do a great job um, ditto with, with with every aspect of, of the production. The, the other major part, of course, of what a producer does is, is raise the money. Because without the money, there is no show. Um, so it's their job to either raise it directly from investors or to go out and find other either co-producers or associate producers who will who will raise on, on behalf of. So yeah, it's a big old job. Yeah, and, and how long does all that take, you know, everything that you've just listed from getting the rights from the show and raising the funds, getting the director, putting it all together. How, how, how long does that usually take you? It depends. It depends. Longer if it's a new piece of work, because inevitably there are workshops and rewrites and, and all those sorts, of, and longer preview periods and all those things in the middle. Um, for a, if we're talking about, let's say, just a, a, a good revival at somewhere like Southwark Playhouse, probably bet- between a year and 18 months. And what takes the time is normally venue availability because the venue are so overloaded and they've got so many shows, people that want to produce in their venues. Um, that can also be the case in the West End. You know, some, some shows, you know that if they're big enough titles, that they will sort of, they, they will take priority over other titles. But, you know, you've got to, in the West End, you've got to wait for something to close before a theatre becomes available. So it can be, it can be years um, but yes, on, on average, I would say the, the actual process of putting the show together probably takes between six months and a year, but it can take longer than that if you're waiting for the, for the right theatre. I'm a big believer that shows tell you where they live. So there are certain shows that I wouldn't do in certain theatres. So you want to wait for the right place to be available. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a long time, isn't it? It's something that I often forget just how long it takes to put to put on a show. It's and that's so the thing. long. Actors, you know, when you come in, honestly, that's sort of like the, 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 the hiring the actors, rehearsing the show and putting it on is like the last 10%. It's the most important 10%, but we've sort of the legwork that's gone into getting to that point is, um, is yeah, it's this sort of time consuming and, and can be so frustrating because all we want to do at any level, whoever it is, is just get on with it, be in the room, make the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. 
So uh, let's get on to mental health. What have your experiences been with mental health? So this can be um, yourself or just your your observations. Well, I'm again, I'm incredibly fortunate that um, I haven't. I've not had. I'm. I, I'm. Not, I, I don't. I don't suffer with mental health issues. Certainly not ones that I'm that get in the way of my life. I mean, I think you know. Of course, we all have down days. We all have bad things that happen that, that affect us. I completely. From my, I'm only speaking for myself. I'm very lucky that I'm able to be a glass half full person and 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 not struggle with those issues. But I'm very conscious of those who do, and I have a lot of people in my life who do. Um, and what I think is fantastic through people like you and other organisations that we're talking about it. You know, uh, I remember when I was at drama school, people would say, "Pull yourselves together, get on with it." If you don't, if you can't, if you can't cope with it, then we'll get someone else. And I think those conversations are incredibly damaging and becoming, maybe they're not becoming less, but they're certainly becoming talked about when they happen more. And I think that's, that's great because, you know, our industry is, it's ridiculous. If you think about what, I'm talking about actors specifically now, you, you, you literally rip your skin off and stand in front of an audience and say, do you love me? And an audience can turn back and go, nope. Your shit, in whatever formula that may take, and to do that over and over and over again, every time you an audition. I mean, let's face it: nine times out of ten, you're not going to get the job, right? And that's got nothing to do with your ability. That's simply to do with oh, you don't fit. You don't fit our view. Our view. How to, how to cope with that mentally? Keep strong. Keep believing in yourself. I mean, I think it's extraordinary, and I'm so glad that we are now being forced to if we weren't before but being allowed to be more open about mental health and 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 you know what some of it's just simply about basic human decency and respect isn't it it's not it's not about medical it's not about you know we talking about mental health doesn't mean because someone has a mental health problem it can just be talking about how to be a decent human being in society um, and I, I think that's great. I mean, something that I'm sure you you guys have talked about in the past is, you know, this idea of casting directors letting people know if they've got a job or not. And let me be honest, there are two sides to every coin here because, you know, the reality is if I've seen 500 people in a first round as, as a one-man band, the time that it takes to get back to everybody and say no, you know, who's paying me for that time? You know, where does that, where does that come from? The reality of being able to be, to run, to run a business and also be kind, but we have to do better, you know, but I certainly think in terms of, I mean, from my point of view, in terms of from recall onwards, I can't bear the idea that anyone who's given that much time to a process should find out they didn't get the job by reading a cast, you know, the casting breakdown page. That's just not okay anymore, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Because the amount of time that, that you do put into um, sending those emails and I, I completely agree that after um, you know the finals or whatever to send to send that reply but you know as you say you're a one-man band that takes so much time I think all it takes is a, a system or, or something to to make that easier for all of our one-man bands out there and people that are just completely overwhelmed with work as all of our creatives are because I always say, you know, I always say I can't, I, I, I never, I, I can't, there just isn't, there, there aren't the resources for me to offer feedback to everybody. But if an agent asks for feedback, I will give it, 100%. So then you think, okay, well, maybe the onus falls on the agent, but then the agent's in the same boat. How many clients have they got going out to audition, you know, week after week after week? And for them to have to chase up on all of that, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. We should all do better, but, that it's, but it, it's, it's, it's not straightforward. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. For sure. So just staying on mental health, what are the, the pressures of being a producer, especially in this current climate? Well, I mean, in this current climate, we aren't really being anything, are we, any of us? Um, and, and that's what I found. That's the thing that I found sort of fascinating is because my whole life revolves around my work. You know, all my, all my friends, my real friends are from the theatre world you know I don't I don't keep in touch with that girl from primary school who I sat next to I don't that's just that's just the way I've gone through my life so so I'm absolutely sort of embraced and embroiled in in my career so you take the career away and you go oh suddenly who am I what what's my purpose as a human not even not even as a as a producer or as a worker in the industry but just who am I if I don't do what I do um, and I found that quite interesting so I've I've filled this time with 
doing things, making making things that I can make, just as much as for, for my own sanity as for the good that it will, it will either raise money for charity or to give to other people or anything, you know. There, there's that brilliant episode. I can't believe I'm about to quote Friends on this, but you know, that episode of Friends where they say there is no such thing as a good as a as a selfless act. Have you seen that? Episode? Yeah. Anyway, um, and it's true. I mean, it's a big thing, isn't it? That that any selfless act makes you feel good, so therefore it is innately selfish as well because you're making yourself feel good. And I have no problem with that whatsoever. So, and yes, any good that I can do elsewhere is great, but it also makes me feel good. And it makes me feel useful and and worthwhile and not like I'm just sitting on the sofa eating pizza and watching Midsummer Murders for the rest of my life, um, which is not a bad thing to do once in a while. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it is hard. I mean, I was in a cre- an incredibly fortunate position and I very much appreciate the fact that I am lucky that I didn't have anything on or anything booked in the near future. So I didn't have to cancel anything. I didn't have to lay anyone off and I haven't lost anyone any money. Um, and that, that, I, I know of other producers who are, you know, who have had to lay off four or five things and I just, I feel for them enormously. But for me, I was very lucky that that wasn't the case. And I find myself trying to think, you know, what, what, we have to be proactive. We have to think to the future because there will be a future. We will come out of this. This too shall pass. What it will look like, we don't really know. And how long it will last, we don't really know. And I certainly think from the minute that flip, the, the, they flip the switch of we're back to some sense of, being able to sit in a theatre I think that that's when the real work's going to t- t- start it's that period until there is either a vaccine or it has been eradicated or whatever until we go back to whatever normal use look like that's going to be the tricky period navigating because at the moment we're hypothesizing and people are doing brilliant hypotheses really fantastic work about what might happen if how can we theoretically get a, but it, at the moment it's a hypothesis to know what it's actually going to be like and also whether anyone else will come. You know, we're desperate to get back into the theatre. We're finding all these thousands of ways to make it work. But we are relying on an audience to feel safe enough to come and watch. So, yeah, it's fascinating. And um, I don't, I mean, I don't have the answers. There are are far better, cleverer, more proactive people than me out there who are doing brilliant work in trying to put us back together in some form or other for the interim. Well, you're you're doing amazing things as well. Um, I I seen you a couple of weeks ago over Zoom for um, an online mock edition, which was fantastic. I think you were one of the first um, people to do that, which is brilliant. Um, and just kind of navigating and helping others, you know, get get used to what an edition might be like, which, which is brilliant. So you're you're doing so much, and it's fantastic. And I think um, it, it's been so amazing to see how our whole industry has came together and you know, supporting each other throughout this time. Do you as a producer, you know, prior to what's happened and certainly after when we do come out of this period of time, um, do you as a producer feel um, a sense of responsibility, um, you know, at the top of that pyramid to look after everyone on the rest of that pyramid's mental health? You know, you you do so much as a producer and it must be overwhelming to to have all that responsibility for a whole team of people behind a production? I mean, yes, absolutely. But also I think, I think when we find our niche in the world, so, so my job doesn't feel overwhelming to me because it's my job, because it's what I do. I can absolutely understand that must, must look like it might feel overwhelming to, to other people. I think it's overwhelming. I mean, nowadays, even though I was an actor, the idea of standing on stage and having to learn lines is overwhelming. But to you guys, that's just what you do, right? So I think I want to be clear about the fact that I don't want to sort of deify what I do in any respect because for me it is just my job a lot of it is formulaic a lot of it is you know you there's a template and you you do this by this date and that by that date and then you know but yes I mean but in terms of looking after human the people the human the human aspect of the job yeah um there is a responsibility to look after people and I I would like to think it's difficult for me to say this but I would like to think that like my, my epitaph will read she made good companies not she made good shows because for me you can't have one without the other and I want people to walk away from a show of mine and say that was that was the best experience I've had or that was a great experience and when I hear that 10 years later that company go out for a drink I love that because that's that's when I know I've done my job 
because you know what we do a show it finishes you put it in a box in storage and that's that's that and it's a lovely memory but it's gone but if if you can keep it alive in some respects outside of the actual what you do on stage then that, that's that's actually what makes me as proud as the reviews or you know the accolades or anything like that yeah, yeah. that's fantastic Lovely. As we mentioned at the start, you're a producer and you're a casting director as well. Do you sometimes find it difficult to strike the balance between the two with them both being such busy jobs that obviously require a lot of a lot of admin? Um, Yes and no. So I, I have to be honest now and say I rarely cast anything that isn't my own, just simply for that reason, for the time. I don't have the time to commit. And especially when you're working for someone else, you actually feel more responsibility to do more work. Whereas for me, I can't, I, I'm not going to shout, you know, the, the producer in me isn't going to shout the casting director because <laughs> she's done a really good job. And vice versa, you know, as a casting director, I don't feel any pressure to, to fulfil the needs of the producer because I'm, I know what those needs are. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I rarely cast now for other people. If it's a director that I love and they need a bit of help on something, absolutely. But the idea of casting a West End show for somebody else, I just, I mean, I, I couldn't, I could not, I couldn't fulfil uh, the responsibility. Um, so, uh, so in that respect, it, it is, it is, there is a lot of work and, and they, the two are completely separate jobs, but the fact that I can, the fact that I, as a casting director, I'm answerable to the director and the producer, yet I am one of those people. And, you know, a lot of the time, especially if I'm working with directors, like for instance, Tom Sutherland, who we've done, we're, well, we're into double figures now of shows we've done together. Um, I'm so inside his brain and he's so inside mine that we've actually got to the the point that if we're doing, for instance, recast of Titanic, he only now comes to recalls because he just, you know, he knows what, he knows what I'm going to put in front of him and and I know what he wants. So we, we, you know, we have that sort of shorthand, um, which makes life a lot easier. I do, I do hold my hand up and say that on those smaller scale musicals, sort of the, 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 off West End scale, we are not in a position to see everybody, which I know is upsetting for maybe maybe grads or grads who have maybe not got the agent that they wanted to or have ended up um, uh, leaving drama school without an agent. But the reality is that it's show business and there is a business side of it that needs to be considered. And audition rooms cost money and audition pianists cost money and simply the time that we have to spend on it. So we are we can be more selective than, than even we would like to be. But the fact is, if we don't see everybody, we could miss somebody. But, but, but somewhere along the line, a decision has to be made about how the process how, can work for us, you know. And there are big Western shows where they will see literally everybody, and that's brilliant. I'm not in a position for, for a show at Southern Playhouse to be able to do that because um, there just isn't the time. So it's, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect, but... We, we, we just have to hope that we find... Look, we only need one person for each role, so therefore we have to be finite about the amount of people we see. And obviously, if we don't find them first round, we can go again. But it's just the reality of the resources that we have at our fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. On the subject of Southwark Playhouse, mm-hmm. you produced a show last year, or was it the start of this year? I'm getting so confused with what year we're in. <laughs> um, but explored a strong theme of mental health. Um, can you chat to us about this show? Sure. So that was um, it was called Preludes, uh, and it was written by Dave Malloy, who wrote. Um, he, he's not particularly well known over here, but he's the big show that everybody knows is Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of eighteen twelve. Um, having said that, actually, about three months after we closed, another of his shows, Ghost Quartet, opened at the the new the brand new Boulevard Theatre, which you haven't been to. You must go to when it reopens because it's. Like the sexiest thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it revolves for God's sake. What more does anyone want? Um, so no, but Prelude. So uh, it's it's an inc- incredible piece. It's about Rachmaninoff, uh, and it's about there was a period um, it, of in between him writing his first symphony at like twelve years old. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, he was you know twenty odd. He wrote a symphony, which is sort of blows my mind that anyone can be that smart at that age. Uh, and it it was panned. And he went into into a severe depression and uh, got the most incredible writer's block. And for a good three or so years, uh, sort of didn't really write anything. And went, and, but, but visited a, a hypnotist, um, hypnotherapist, and uh, it was sort of the beginning of the, the modern age of mental dealing with mental health in a medical way. And she just, she, 
well, she in the show, it was a man, obviously, um, at the time, just sort of, it was a talking process of, of memory and uh, hypnotherapy in, in, in its most modern sense, I suppose. Um, and it, it, it broke him and he ended up going back to, to become the Ratman and off that we subsequently know and love. Um, it's an extraordinary piece of theatre because Dave Malloy, well, he's a genius. And I use that word really, it's banded around a lot, but I think he really genuinely is. Um, for someone who, first of all, who writes book, music, lyrics and orchestrations um, and nails all of them is extraordinary. But the idea, of, so he used, the Ratmaninoff was played by two actors. You have Ratmaninoff who sits at the piano and is sort of the Ratmaninoff, the, the, the representation of what we know. And then the Ratmaninoff who speaks and sings is sort of the, the reality of the, of the breakdown. And the music is a fusion of Ratmaninoff's pieces played on the grand piano, but then all the, the only other music is synthesized, so it only comes out of keyboards. And it's what goes on in his mind. So it's, it's the fractured and the, the, the dissipated and the, and the broken down um, way he hears his music. And it's just absolutely fascinating. And it was such a joy to work on. I mean, deeply moving. Um, and it was, you know, I'll t- can I tell you a story that was really fascinating? I remember after the first full run through in the rehearsal room which for me are always like the most fun bits I actually prefer run throughs in rehearsal rooms because you can really see without all the stuff without all the lights and the costume and the the props just to see what it is and normally what happens at the end of a run you'll know this because you've all been there is the end of a run through you know everyone gives themselves a clap and then we all sit down we do a bit of notes and the producer probably says oh well done everyone should we go for a drink there was something at the end of that rehearsal where I did not feel they were in a space that I was not invited into. And, the, and, and all of us sitting watching felt the same. They, it was so special for them. And it was so, they had created a safe space to do what they did in, that we were just not, it wasn't our space to, to enter. And we didn't do notes. And look, let's be absolutely honest, because we are all talking about actors here. There was a moment where that broke and we did all go for a drink, of course. But <laughs> Let's give notes. It was like, no, th- th- this is a moment has just happened and that moment lives and we need to leave it where it is. And I've never had that before. Wow. That's, it's, That's it was a, it's a really special show. Um, I personally, as a musician as well, just absolutely adored seeing that kind of music being played on stage because it's really hard. Um, <laughs> I can't play it. But yeah, it, it's such a, and it's just so great to see mental health being explored in in that kind of medium as well. So yeah, it was a, a fantastic piece of theatre. Thank you. Yeah, I'm incredibly proud of it on so many levels. I mean, on the, you know, just, it's always lovely to do a European premiere or something. That's always great. Um, and it's always nice to uh, to dig into something that is just a great piece of theatre. But then to have that other level of talking about something that needs to be talked about more and needs to be highlighted and to be able to do that organically. You know, this is not a piece about mental health. It's a piece about, you know, it's a, that's, the, that's the subplot. That's the sub-theme to it. But to be able to put it front and centre and, and have people come and watch it without knowing that that's what they were coming to watch was really important. Yeah. Definitely. One of the things we're really passionate about at Tax for Actors is education. Education about tax, about self-employment, about finance. I've seen firsthand how a lack of education regarding tax and finance can have a detrimental impact on someone's career, but also on their mental health. The stress of managing money, the stress of where that next paycheck is going to come from really can't be underestimated. And I guess that's one of the driving forces behind Tax for Actors. Yes, we want to help you with your self-assessment. Yes, we want to act as your accountant. But more importantly, we want to be part of your support network as you navigate through the various stages of your career, whether that's the ups or whether that's the downs. We want to be there by your side, offering our support and our advice. So if we can help you out, our contact details can be found in the show notes. They can be found at the end of this podcast, or you can drop us an email on owen at taxforactors.com. Enough of me talking. Enjoy the rest of the show. So you are the co-founder of the Many Chocolate Factory. How did this come about? 
Um, I'm going to be brief about this because I don't really, I mean, not. I, I love it and I'm so proud of being the co-founder of it and everything, but it's sort of, that's a, that's a previous part. And after 10 years after I left, I sort of thought I'm not really going to talk about the chocolate factory anymore because it exists now in such a fantastic form that, that they that they should they should talk about it but how it came about was um I uh, we were we were looking for a space I'd done a show with a friend and we were looking for a new space and had heard about the Menier and went to have a look really um and walked into a building I've never had such I've never even with the flat that I now live in which I lived in for 23 years which I love I've never had that feeling of walking into a space and going I belong here um, and it was just extraordinary, the feeling of I've come home. So, um, so yeah, so it was what, literally one of those things that we came to look at something for to do a four-week run of a play-in. And I sort of got in the building and thought, well, I'm never leaving here. And you know, I metaphorically handcuffed myself to the railings and said, that's it. Um, and long story short, um, met David Babani and we had similar interest and off we were. Because I knew, I, I think we both knew it was something we couldn't do on our own because we were being offered the restaurant as well. Um, so you know that's that's two jobs in one and um but yeah very quickly after meeting and putting in a proposal we were in Fantastic. and it was glorious I mean we started with literally nothing we, I, I clearly remember on sort of like the first week eating pizza off the floor because we didn't have any desks yet and then we sort of got you know two desks two chairs a couple of computers somebody who ran the box office and off we went I mean we were we did everything ourselves it was glorious in those days um but but very quickly grew into something very special. I mean, we had our first West End transfer within a year. And actually, I'll tell you, do you know the, the time that I knew we'd made it? It's funny little things that you remember. I knew we'd made it when about 10 minutes before the end of the show, one night, I looked out the window of the restaurant, there was a line of black ca- black taxis waiting. I thought, if the cabbies know they're going to pick up a fare, we've, we've, we've done all right. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. So what do you think needs to change in order to support the mental well-being of those in cast in front of the curtain and behind it? And what do you think needs to change in order for this to happen? Oh, dear. Do you know what? I can only I can only talk about what I think. I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not trained in any way in this. And I, I always worry being asked questions like this because I think my opinion might not be, you know, I might have a lot still to learn on this. So it's, it's, it worries me answering questions like this because it's so easy to say the wrong thing, you know. Uh, but from my point of view, I think, I think we just have, we have to be aware. Um, do you know what? I might have used the word alert, but we're never allowed to use the word alert again now because apparently the only thing we're allowed to be alert about is coronavirus. And I don't know how you'd be alert about. So alert is now a word, alert and unprecedented, a word we're never to use ever again. Um, to be aware of... Do you know what? And I don't think anything of this, this is to do with theatre. I think it's about human nature. It's to be, to, to be open to how people are feeling and to be conscious and respectful of how people people's moods and what's going on in their life and and open to it it's so easy to say I haven't got time or we've got to move on or you know come and talk to me about it later and I just think we have to be better at that it is hard because you know in our industry where time is money so much and there's so little we have such a tight schedule it's it is easy isn't it just to say another day later move on um and I think we just need to be better at that and I think we need to be you know just more in tune with how people are feeling um but yeah it's I mean I'm not saying it's easy but I but just the fact that we're talking about just the fact that we're having this conversation now means and I think ever since start this this sort of movement started being a thing and just being talked about I certainly am much more conscious of tapping into people or taking someone to one side just saying is it you know those sorts of things um and I just think we just have to be better we just have to on a and not set ourselves unrealistic goals but just you know just in the moment just go what what could I do better right now yeah I think I think that's such a valid valid answer because I mean that's why we get so many different people on the podcast because there is no 
there isn't a, a specific perfect answer and um especially the the last question that we'll ask you which we ask everyone there there isn't a right or wrong answer to it and just just the fact that um you're saying we can be better in that specific moment in what we're doing is is really important and that the conversation has been been opened up and the fact that the conversation has been opened up which is making more people aware it's just chipping away at it isn't it yeah i think so i think so um, and I, you know, I would like to think that, you know, I, I pride myself on this, again, nothing to do with the, the industry, but just in life of being someone approachable and someone sort of hopefully who, you know, you can come and talk to me if you want to. And I, do, and, you know, I do. And, and, you know, and the other thing, sometimes that's draining. It's like, oh God, can I just have five minutes to me? But we have to be better. We have to be open. We have to. And I think the other thing, do you know something else? We weren't going to, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I think it's, it's relevant is going back to that pyramid we were talking about. I think every you know, the people at the top need looking after too, you know? Yeah. And I think that tends to get forgotten. I mean, as I say, I, I, I'm lucky that I, um, I'm fine. But, you know, it is, it, is, it is stressful and it is, especially if things aren't going well and the money that's invested and, you know, the pressure on, on the, being a producer, which, we're, which we all accept and we embrace because that's what we do and that's fine. But, you know, it, go, it, it goes all the way through the hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Something that we chat chat a lot about, me and Kathy as well. And it's even, you know, we've got our counselling service and, you know, even that counsellor needs support as well. And in the counselling system, there's um, a whole kind of route where that counsellor can go and get um, additional support. And even us running this this platform, sometimes um, I think people think that we're, you know, superhumans and we're here, there and everywhere. It's like, actually, we both suffer as well. And uh, we're, we're just two people. And I think exactly that and the, the people at the top of, of any anything, I think especially theatre, can often be forgotten. And that's why, you know, we're, we're so grateful to have you on today to, to bring awareness to that, because it, it is, it's, it's really important. You know, we're all, you know, human. We all, we all feel so absolutely. So let's, um, we've kind of touched on this already, but let's move on to, to how things are going to change. How do you think that the recent events are going to affect us going forward in the future? What measures would you be likely to take when we're, when we're up and running? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, would, I would hope that we don't go back to the way things were. But I would hope that, so, that if anything good can come out of this period, however long, it ends up being is that we learn things I mean for instance there will be simply no need to go into town to have a meeting anymore because Zoom which quite frankly up until 12 weeks ago was just a song by Fat Larry's band is now our life right and I appreciate that fatigue sets in and it's not the same but I think we can be so much more proactive with our time by doing things like this and if we're proactive with our time it might mean we're not as stressed and not working so hard and we know how tiring travel can be it might just put us all in a better place if we're not having to run backwards and forwards to meetings all the time so that's a positive thing um i think i wonder about first round auditions big first round auditions i'm not saying for a second that shows will be cast over the internet but if we can if you know going back to what i said about i, I can only see 20 people for a first round what about if I do, if it, we do do self-tapes and I can literally do them in my house and I can sit while I'm having my dinner, watch another 10 auditions. I'm not saying that's positive because we will have to have breaks and blah, blah, blah. But I wonder if that will become more of a thing. Don't know. Um, I definitely think uh, people will stop shaking hands. I definitely do not think people will start hugging and kissing each other. Because I don't, you know, I went out uh, with, a, with my, my, a friend of mine uh, on Monday. We went for a, a socially distanced walk. We were very good. We followed the rules. I realized the amount of times that we went to just not, not, not sort of practice, not touch each other actively, but just those things that you do, you know, just you touch someone's arm or you, you know, whatever you do, or you pick, you know, pick someone's fluff off there. Oh my God. I realized that, you know, and I had to, you know, almost sort of tie my hands by my side. So, so I think that's interesting. Um, but I don't think we'll ever be able to stop kissing each other because we're lovies and that's what we do, right? I think I'd, it will be interesting to see how we get back to the theatre. I think, um, I think it, you know, and, until there's a vaccine, I genuinely worry about how it's going to work. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? You, re, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about, getting back to, trying to get back to, to, to get the economy going again in the theatre. We're talking about audience are the audience feel safe how can we socially distance the audience where are they going to, 
hand sanitizers, temperature. You know, let's also worry about what's happening on and on and backstage. You know, because how do you do a pas de deux without touching? How do you? How do you? How does a wig mystery fit, fit a wig? There's a thousand things that you know. Just those handing props to one another, and there's some handing a prop. There's there's a million reasons why it doesn't work on and backstage as well as in front. So slightly easier, of course, with a company because you can do testing and and if everyone's all right, then at least if you. But then that that also requires you to keep within your bubble. Unrealistic. So I don't know. I don't know. I worry about it. Um, I think smaller theatres will be will come back easier because just lack of more, just simply less people involved. Um, But still, will audiences feel safe? Uh, I wonder what audiences will want to see. You know, there's, there's one argument that says that actually it'll be that sort of light entertainment, fun, frivolous, shiny stuff that everyone wants to see because they just want to leave their brains at the door and come back and, 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 and enjoy themselves. On the flip side, there's an argument that says, Actually, no, we have spent, we have been absolutely starved of a shared experience. But actually, it's the really deep and meaningful things, the things that require great thought um, that will actually inspire us more. So actually, maybe it's more of that. Who knows? Who knows? And I think, you know, I think there's place for both. Um, I just, I just hope that, that when we, whenever we do come back and whenever we come back to normality, however far in the distance that is, that lessons have been learned and that we can, because I'm sure you must have said this. I've been talking to people I haven't seen in years. And I say, oh, my God, we must do this. There is no reason that I can't spare 15 minutes at some point in a week over a month to pick up the phone and call someone. And we will keep those good things going for a bit. But sooner or later, we will lapse back into old habits, right? And it'd be just that would be the thing I would like to take from this, that, with the, that the old habits stay away for a little bit longer. Absolutely. I think it was so interesting, well, everything that you said there, but particularly about um, Zoom, because already I know so many close friends who have gone, actually, I'm going to let go of my, my lease in London and I'm going to go back home and I might stay there for for the future because, you know, thanks to Zoom, I might not need to be in London anymore and, you know, Break, breaking it working in you know zero hour contracts to to make rent and I think you know it's an absolute valid point that we have zoom in our lives now but I, I didn't even know zoom existed thank goodness for zoom I used it once I used it once when I was um on a job in Abu Dhabi and they they stopped whatsapp happening in Abu Dhabi and like any kind of social media and the only thing that works is um is zoom over there but I'd literally used it once and then suddenly it's just everywhere and I think you're right I think that there is um there's lots and lots of good things that can be taken from this and I really really do hope that we make the effort and that we we aren't lazy going back into our old ways and that there is definitely like a chance to change things when we come back so we've kind of answered about your job anyway but could you tell us something that our listeners may not know about being a producer and a casting director that you think is really really key I think I know it sounds silly Okay, from a producer's point of view, remember we're human. That we're just the same as you. We just have a different title. Um, the other thing that I think, and I say this a lot, I do a lot of um, acting through song masterclasses and uh, audition technique and that sort of thing, as uh, certainly Scarlett knows. Um, but, you know, lots of those things. And a lot uh, at drama schools as well, so graduating students. And it's sort of getting over, especially if there's lots of grads listening, that idea of getting over the idea that you have to please us, that we are teachers. You know, if we call you into, if I call you into an audition, and I say this, it sounds, it sounds crass, but I promise you it's true. It's true for me. I'm grateful that you've taken time out of your busy day to come and audition. I can't do my job without you. So this idea of us and them, like having to please, having to do right, having to do what, what you think we want somehow you've sort of got to dispel that and just come in and they, and do your job we could this is another whole conversation this is another you know we could we could talk about this for an hour but just the idea that, that don't don't put people on the panel on a pedestal okay yes be respectful be kind be polite be all the things that you would want to be as a human but but try not to put the additional pressure on yourself of needing to please us if you're right, we will cast you. If you're not right, we won't. That does not mean to say you're bad. 
Yeah. I use the analogy of the jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, if you're a jigsaw piece, you've got a little sticky outy bit. Your sticky outy bit has to fit with the other person's cutty outy bits. They need to go together. If they don't fit, it doesn't matter how good you both are, you're not going to be right for the show. And I've got to make a jigsaw puzzle that has all its pieces fitting. Yeah. So I think just, yeah, just, just, just don't put, and it's awful because, you know, it's your livelihood and the rejection must be horrific for you. But just try and keep in your mind that you didn't lose a job most of the time, unless you have had a terrible day and the audition goes awfully, which we all have, and that's fine. You hopefully park it and learn from it. But the bottom line is you don't get a job because you just there's someone more right than you, and there's nothing that you can do to make yourself more right. Yeah. Very, very wise Absolutely. words. So true. Completely, completely. Like I'm doing this every time you're speaking. Um, amazing. This has been such an amazing interview, honestly. Thank you so, so much. We've got one last question for you, which we ask um, everyone. And that is, could you walk into a room today and say, I'm having a bad mental health day? Could I? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I could. I don't know who'd be listening, but I could certainly vocalise it. Fantastic. Amazing. Great. I'm- very blessed to say that most of the time I don't have to yeah great Danielle thank you so so much um we do have another game for you uh uh, this one is it's slightly easier I think personally (laughs) this is uh this is finish the sentence so okay my favorite month of the year is uh um, I've got two so I don't know December because it's my birthday uh, if I could live anywhere in the world and not have it affect my job, it would be? So long as I could definitely still have a place in London, it would be New York. Oh, lovely. I mean, you already said that you don't you don't have Netflix. So the question was my current Netflix watches, but maybe something like what I'm watching on TV is? I am binge watching Damages, Glen Coast uh, Damages, um, and absolutely loving it. Never saw an episode of it first time around, but it's absolutely brilliant. I love a legal drama. Oh, great. Um, my favourite show I've ever produced is... Oh, come on. <laughs> like saying to a mother of five, who do you like the best of your, all your kids? No, no. Okay. And it, and it has been the most successful for me in terms of uh, longevity. So let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my dream show to produce would be... Nine. Glorious nine. Amazing. Everyone should be more kind. My favorite press night drink is all of it. <laughs> and finally, today I am grateful for talking to you guys. You're the uh, only, only thing in my diary today where I get to, to speak out loud to a human being. So I'm grateful to you. Oh, um, we're very grateful for you. Danielle, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to have you on to chat genuine pleasure thank you thank you so much thank you so much for listening to this episode of industry minds if you'd like to get in contact with us you can reach us on our email which is info at industryminds.co.uk for all counselling inquiries please email mary at industryminds.co.uk you can find us on social media our twitter and instagram handles are at industrymindsuk There you can keep up to date with all our latest announcements. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.